Well, good morning. Uh, as Aaron said, my name is Timothy. I'm one of the pastors here at Christ Central, and it's a privilege to be with you. Uh, grateful for this opportunity to bring God's Word to you. This morning, we are continuing in our sermon series entitled Right in the Eye, a study of the book of Judges. And today, we're going to be looking at the first of the 12 judges that God raised up to deliver his people, Israel. As is our custom here at Christ Central, I'm going to ask that if you're able, you would stand for the reading of God's word. This is Judges chapter 3, starting in verse 7. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Therefore, the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishiathim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Cushan Rishiathim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them, Othniel, the son of Kenaz, Caleb's younger brother. The Spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. And he went out to war, and the Lord gave Cushan Rishathim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over Cushan Rishathim, So the land had rest 40 years. Then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. The prophet Isaiah says, The grass withers and the flowers fade, but God's word endures forever. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you for your word. We believe your word is true. We ask that you would speak to us this morning through your word, that you would... Give me the courage to get out of your way so that you can communicate clearly with us, your people. I pray that this morning we would encounter you, living God, and we would be transformed. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and hearts to understand. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. Last week, for those of you who weren't here, Pastor Daniel informed us that at the heart of the book of Judges is a heart problem. God is after our whole hearts, and therefore it's not okay to just be okay with God. And yet somewhat ironically, the book of Judges exists as a story of God's people failing to give God their whole heart, not once, but over and over and over again. And in case you haven't picked up on it yet, the reason that we are studying this book in Durham, 2018, 19, sorry, is because the truth is that you and I both have been diagnosed with the exact same heart problem. Each of us struggles daily to wholeheartedly serve the one true God. Thankfully, our text this morning reveals God's gracious plan of how to turn half-hearted people 
into wholehearted worshipers of him. There's three things that I want to highlight from our text this morning as we begin to dive in. First, what's wrong with our hearts? Secondly, the call to remember. And then thirdly, the painful reminder. So let's begin. Look again with me at our text starting in verse 7. It says, And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. As our series title alludes to, they did what was right in their own eyes rather than what was right in God's eye. But what exactly was this evil that they committed? The text goes on to say that they forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth. Now, in order to understand what's wrong with Israel's hearts and ours, we have to first understand what this word forget is all about. You see, in the Bible, remembering and forgetting both have a spiritual significance. For example, throughout the Old Testament, we often see God's people asking God to remember certain things, to remember his love, to remember his mercy, to remember his covenant. Not only do we see God's people asking God to remember, but at times they even ask God to forget. For example, Isaiah 64 Verse 9 says that God's people ask God to remember not their sins. Now what's going on here? I I think it's safe to assume that God's people didn't think that God would literally forget what he was like. That God would literally forget his character. Nor did they actually believe that God would literally forget the sins that they had committed. So if not a literal remembering or forgetting, what then were God's people asking of him? You see, when God's people asked God to remember his love, his mercy, his covenant, they were actually asking God to act according to his character, to act with integrity, to to be who he claims to be. And similarly, when God's people asked God to remember not their sins, they were asking God not to act on what he knew to be true. And the point is that when the Bible speaks of remembering and forgetting, it's actually talking about the connection between our head and our heart. The connection between what we know and what we actually do. Which brings us now back to verse 7. It says, they forgot the Lord their God. So in light of what was what we just learned, we can See, the text is not saying that God's people literally forgot about God. This is not like the flashy thing in Men in Black where somehow God's people had their memories erased and they're like, God who? That's not what's happening here, but rather what the text is saying, when they say they forgot their God, it's saying that a breakdown had occurred between the head and the heart. No longer were God's people being controlled by, gripped by what they knew. Or as Tim Keller says it, though they knew who God was and what he wanted, those things were not real to them. This is the birthplace of what Daniel talked about last week of idolatry. The truths of God that were once vibrant and real over time become less and less so in our hearts. And yet because we are worshipers, because we were created to worship, because we can't help but worship something, therefore other things, idols, become more real to our hearts. And we begin to worship them instead. 
What does this practically look like? Make it plain, Pastor. What this looks like in my life is that when the things of God are less real, I find myself caring more about my bank account and the stock market. I find myself less willing to respond with grace to any sort of inconvenience. I find myself entering the pulpit with a lot of fear and trembling and not the good kind of fear and trembling. So what's going on there? You see, when when I'm blind to the truth of who God is, when I forget the Lord my God, I inevitably find myself groping for something else to fill me, something to satisfy me, something to live for. So I obsessively check the stock market, hoping that security might make me happy. Or I demand that others treat me a certain way, believing that comfort will fill me up. Or I tremble in my vocation, because I'm so desperately longing for the approval of man to fill me up, and I'm afraid that I might not get it. Church, in what ways are your hearts broken? How have you forgotten the Lord your God and instead turned to idols, to false gods? I don't know what this looks like in your life, but I do know that we all, like Israel, struggle with this disease of forgetfulness. So what do we do about that? In a moment, we're going to look at how God reminds his people that he is Lord. But before we do that, I want to take a moment to offer you some preventative medicine in keeping with the heart-sick metaphor. Much in the same way that if you exercise every day, which I do not, but if you did, your heart would most likely perform better and last longer. There's also ways that we can cultivate similarly a healthy spiritual heart. And this preventative medicine is rather obvious, although often ignored. Put simply, to reverse our heart forgetfulness, we need to remember. I came up with that on my own. It's pretty good. The call to remember, my second point that we see here. There's this fascinating description of this remedy in 2 Peter chapter 1. Here, Peter is urging Christians to live a certain way, to grow in faith and godliness and self-control and so on. As we said earlier, he's trying to encourage them to to act on what they know to be true. He's encouraging head and heart synthesis. And the part I want to highlight for you is in verse 9, where Peter speaks to those who are not growing in these ways, those who are struggling who don't have head and heart synthesis. And and what's interesting is that contrary to what we might assume, Peter does not say the problem is you're not trying hard enough and you need to try harder. Then these qualities will grow in you. But rather, Peter says that if anyone does not have these qualities, he has forgotten that he has been cleansed from his past sins. And then Peter goes on, to say in verse 12 that he is committed to always remind you of these things even though you know them to stir you up by way of reminder isn't that interesting that even though Peter acknowledges that they know these things he is committed he is promising to remind these people over and over and over again see Peter understands that we all forget the Lord our God, and serve idols instead. He knows this because he is human also, and he is prone to forgetfulness. 
But let us not be discouraged. There's hope in what Peter is saying because it's a reminder that we're not utterly powerless in our forgetfulness. We can strive to remember who God is, to remember, as Peter said, that we have been cleansed from our past sins. And so before we go any further, I want to give you three very practical tools to help you remember. Again, these are not super novel, but I hope that they're helpful. Three habits that you can practice that I'm pretty confident will help you counteract your heart forgetfulness. First, I want to encourage you to spend time daily in God's Word. Why? We do a lot of things daily, don't we? Most of us check email daily, probably watch some TV every day. We talk on the phone, we listen to music, Instagram, Facebook, Twitter. The truth is that all of these habits, these practices are shaping you, whether you realize it or not. The things that we do over and over again inevitably form and shape us. They change us over time, slowly but surely. And so as Christians, we can't simply allow the things of the world to be the loudest and most consistent influences in our lives. We have to counteract the education that we are ingesting each and every day. And so I encourage you to read God's Word every day. Second, I want to encourage you to try out this prayer guide that uh, Daniel and I shared with a handful of you a couple weeks ago at our prayer retreat. We've printed out a bunch of copies there at the Connect table. I'm not going to go into great detail about it right now. Uh, I'm sure we'll do another prayer retreat in the future, but in short, what it is, it's a collection of historic prayers and creeds. And I realize that it might sound weird to many of you to have someone else directing your prayer time, to have a structure and order to your prayer time. But the reason I think it's so helpful and especially pertinent to what we're talking about this morning is because the truth is if we're left to our own devices in our prayer, all that we will pray is what we're able to recall, what we're able to remember. And the beauty of this prayer guide is that it actually informs us. It begins to shape us as we are reminded each and every day of who God is, of what he has done, of what we are called to do. just want to encourage you with that. You don't have to, but I think it's an interesting way to begin to think about how your time in daily prayer might be a way that you can be shaped and formed and not just respond. Lastly, practical means to remember, I want to encourage you to come to this table every Sunday. Every Sunday here at Christ Central, we conclude the worship service with this, this meal. And when, we, when we're preparing to come, before we come, we're reminded of the words of Jesus. He said, do this in remembrance of me. He said, do this so you won't forget. And we do it over and over and over again. Church, I encourage you, do not underestimate God's ability to use this table to counteract idol worship and remind us of who he is. It's a powerful gift. These are three practical ways that we can fight against our own forgetfulness, ways that we have forgotten the Lord our God. However, the truth is, oftentimes, in spite of our best efforts, just like Israel, we forget nonetheless. Which brings me to my third final point, the painful reminder. Verse 8 says, if you look at the text again, that because the people of Israel forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroth, 
God sold them into the hand of Cushan Rishithim, and they served this king for eight years. Now, the thing that we miss in the English translation is that Rishithim, I have no idea how to say that, is actually not Cushan's last name, but rather it's a nickname. It means doubly wicked. And the reason that the author includes this is that he wants us to realize, to recognize that these eight years of slavery were about as bad as it gets. I think that we can rightfully assume that there was injustice and oppression like we cannot even fathom in this day. And I think if we're honest, it's hard not to read this text and begin to question the goodness of our God. Amen? I'm not going to dance around this point because if I'm honest, I'm not sure I want to serve a God who when his people disobey, he sells them into slavery and then allows Cushan the doubly wicked to oppress the mess out of them for eight years. That sounds kind of sick, right? What's even scarier is that throughout this book, that this is the response that God uses over and over again. Even throughout all of scriptures, God's people forget him and then he brings about suffering into their life in order to bring them back to him. So what do we do with that? I want to begin by telling you a story. Uh, While I was in seminary, I worked for a church as a youth pastor. Without going into too many details, uh, the church could not afford to pay me. uh, And so I raised money through a third-party organization And so therefore, I technically worked for this third party while serving at the church. And about a year after I started this job, I got into a disagreement with uh, the boss, the president of this other organization. Long and short of it is that the president decided that I was being unethical and insubordinate, and therefore he fired me from his organization and seized all the funds that I had raised, somewhere around $12,000. It was, um, it was a pretty devastating experience for me as a, as a young man. What was interesting in this whole experience was that the thing that upset me the most was not the money, but rather what would eat me up inside when I thought about it was the fact that my character had been called into question. And as a result, rage began to build inside of me. I literally began to fantasize about how I was going to destroy this organization and publicly humiliate this man who had the audacity to challenge my character. Well, you know, it's, it's pretty cool now. When I look back on that experience, my heart actually wells up with gratitude. How can that be? You see, over the next year or so, through this painful experience, I began to see how much I idolized, or maybe better stated, how much I worshipped the approval of others. I began to see how my self-worth was wrapped up in being viewed as a godly man. And I can confidently say I would not have seen that sin pattern had I not gone through something as painful and as horrendous as that. And so for that reason, I am grateful for that experience. You see, the truth is, sometimes our forgetfulness of the Lord our God is so deep, it's so ingrained that the only way for us to remember is through suffering. 
Now, before we go any further, I recognize that my story of losing part-time employment no doubt pales in comparison to some of the suffering that many of you have experienced. And so I recognize it's far easier for me to look back on that experience and see God's hand in it and to be grateful than it might be for you to look back on the suffering that you've experienced or the suffering that you are experiencing right now and to see God's hand in it and to be grateful. I know there's experience of suffering that are much harder to see God's hand in to give thanks for, like the loss of a child or abuse at the hands of a loved one, to name a few. And so in light of this reality, I want to spend the rest of our time seeking to reconcile how God can still be good and at the same time utilize suffering for his purposes. Because the truth is, if we cannot reconcile those two things, we're going to have a really hard time with the rest of this book. So how do we do that? How do we reconcile the fact that a supposedly good God voluntarily inflicts suffering on his people? There are two truths about God that are both implied in our text and as well reiterated throughout the scriptures that I want to share with you. And I believe that if you believe them, will enable you to worship a God who voluntarily uses suffering. First, God is jealous for our hearts, and second, God knows what we need. First, God is jealous for our hearts. Motive is huge, isn't it? When we look at watch court cases on TV, one of the main jobs of the prosecution is to establish a motive of the accused. Because motive helps us understand the question, why? In a moment, we're going to look at this method of suffering, but first we have to come to grips with the why. Why, could, why would God do such a thing? And the answer that we get is that the Bible teaches us that God has bound himself to us that he has wed himself to us, that he loves us with a beautifully jealous love. I want you to listen to these words from the prophet Hosea. This is God to us. This is God to you. He says, I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you to me in righteousness and in justice and steadfast love and mercy. I will betroth you to me in faithfulness and you shall know the Lord. The story of Hosea is God telling a, painting a picture of a husband betrothing himself to an unfaithful bride. God is saying here, that's me. I am the husband who is betrothing myself to you, my unfaithful bride. In today's society, marriage is more like a collective bargaining agreement. I'll do my part as long as you do your part, but if not, all bets are off. But that's not the type of marriage that God has entered into with us. The Bible has said that God has set his affection upon us. And his choice to do so is irreversible. And therefore, as Daniel mentioned last week, and as any good husband should, God grieves our infidelity. And he's committed to fighting for our hearts. That's who our God is. And it's his jealous love and only his jealous love that motivates him to use suffering to bring us back to him. That's the why. But not only is God jealous for our hearts, he also knows exactly what we need. If the scriptures are true and God really does love us with a jealous love, love that is unmatched by any earthly expression, 
then we have to believe that God uses suffering because he knows it is the only cure for our idol worship, for our disease of forgetfulness. And parents, I think you get this. As a parent, you're often forced to use suffering in order to bring your child back. We call this discipline. It could be time out or a spanking or a revoking of certain privilege. Whatever it is, when it's done rightly, it exists purely for the good of the child. And I can remember as a child, some of you might connect with this, when I used to get disciplined by my parents, they used to say this phrase in the moment that I thought was ridiculous. They would say, it hurts me more than it hurts you to do this. And I was like, yeah, right, give me that wooden spoon. Let me try this theory out. (laughs) We'll see who it really hurts. But as a parent, I, I, I get it. I hate to discipline my kids. I hate to see them sad. I'd honestly rather use any other method than discipline. But I know that sometimes discipline is the only thing that will bring them back. And therefore, because I know better than they do what they need, I'm willing to insert temporary suffering into their life for their good. Our God knows that sometimes our hearts are so gripped by other things that the only way to bring us back is through suffering. Now, don't miss this, church. It's not just that God knows what we need to get through the day, that he's willing to bring suffering into our life so that we will just make it. But actually, our God knows the pathway to ultimate joy. The suffering that he brings actually produces the fruit and riches of unending joy. Look again at our text. It says that the people of Israel forgot the Lord their God, served the Baals and Asheroth. They served the gods of the surrounding kingdoms. So God disciplines them in a way that very much fits the crime. He gives them over to the surrounding kingdoms. So this is what you want, my people. Here, have it. Go enjoy these kings. He gives them what they are ultimately pursuing. But then what happens? The people of Israel realize that they don't actually want what they thought they wanted. They don't want to serve these gods. The idols that they were pursuing failed to deliver once again. When we forget God and run to other gods, to false gods, to idols, the problem is these idols, they never deliver. They never satisfy. When I obsess over the stock market or make comfort an ultimate thing, or live for the approval of man, the result is I'm actually, in fact, more miserable when I do so. I'm choosing to live this way on my own volition. I chose it, but because of my ignorance, my forgetfulness, I'm actually inflicting pain on myself with idol worship. But the good news is, brothers and sisters, that, that my God refuses to let me live in pain. And so he uses pain for a season to arouse my heart, to get me out of my self-destructive cycle so that I can experience joy in him again. I can't help but think of Johnny Erickson Tata here, someone who maybe understood this better than any. For those who don't know her story, as a young girl, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay. She misjudged the depth of the water. She hit her head on the bottom and was immediately paralyzed for the rest of her life. And I want you to listen to how she now speaks about her suffering years later. She says, One day, we will stand amazed to see the top side of the tapestry 
and how God beautifully embroidered each circumstance into a pattern for our good and his glory. And she goes on to say, he has chosen not to heal me, but to hold me. The more intense the pain, the closer his embrace. What? Not only is Johnny not angry at God about what happened, but she actually celebrates it. She sees her suffering as equivalent to his embrace. We see a similar outcome in Judges 3. The text says in verse 9 that God's plan worked. The people of Israel began to see their idol worship as futile, and therefore they cried out to God. And God raised up a deliverer to come to their rescue, a man named Othniel, who put an end to Cushan, the doubly wicked, and he provided a way for God's people to experience 40 years of rest. But what was this rest? Certainly it meant the absence of war, but in light of what we've been discussing, clearly it was so much more. It was rest from idol worship, rest in the Lord, in the enjoyment of him. That's what the suffering produced. Do you believe, do you believe that suffering can produce rest in the Lord for you? Our text ends on a bad note. It says that the land had rest for 40 years and then Othniel, the son of Kenaz, died. The harsh reality of the book of Judges that we will see time and time again is that although God raises up a deliverer for his people, each and every time, every time the deliverer ultimately dies and God's people ultimately forget and return to their old ways. But church, as we prepare to leave this morning, I want to remind you that God has raised up a new kind of judge, a judge that conquered death and according to the author of Hebrews has purchased for us an eternal rest. And it's him that we are called to remember, him that God reminds us of, him who suffered for us once and for all so that we might find rest in God. So I charge you this morning, remember him. And at the same time, when you experiencing suffer, experience suffering, try not to get angry or bitter, but like Johnny, look for God's hand in it. Believing your God loves you, with a jealous love, that he knows what you need and he is fighting for you to experience ultimate joy in him. Let's pray. God, I know that what we're talking about is so hard to really believe. For us to see the suffering that we experience as a gift from you because you are so jealous for our hearts and you so desperately long for us to experience true joy in you. Father, I pray that we might believe that this morning just a little bit more. God, I know there are people here today that are experiencing a whole world of suffering. And it's beyond anything for them to believe that you, a good God, are in that. That you're with them, that you are pursuing them. God, I pray that you would do the miraculous and, and meet those people in that suffering and remind them of your goodness, of your faithfulness, of your jealous love of them. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.